Welcome to the Fedora Podcast. This is the final episode of Season 2, Episode 10. This is the podcast to teach you about how the Fedora community works. We bring you news, interviews, and more. I'm Grayson, and with me today, I have David Duncan. He's here to tell us about Fedora Cloud. This is the Fedora Podcast, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hi, David. Hi, Grayson. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming and talking to me today. I'm really grateful that you asked. This is a, such a fun you know, podcast, and you do so much with so many people. It's really fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. The first thing I want to know is, who are you, and how are you involved in Fedora? Uh, let's see. How do I identify myself? I think... I'm uh, um, currently a solutions architect working at Amazon um, Web Services, and I live in Austin, Texas, um, although I'm here in a little cabin that my family cabin that I built with my dad uh, many years ago. So That's pretty um, cool. Yeah. And um, uh, I have been involved with Fedora since the move to, uh, since the move for, to Fedora happened, in fact, you know, so uh, I was, um, I was involved in uh, building systems, uh, solutions for customers, right? I was doing um, solutions integration in, uh, in Austin. And I got involved with uh, Fedora because I was using Red Hat 9, and there was this big switch to Enterprise Linux, and I was already working with a lot of friends, you know, on different projects. The Linux uh, Linux in Schools project at that point um, was called the Terminal Server Project back in those days, but but still same project. And um, uh, working on you know small nonprofit uh, organization configurations. And Fedora was sort of a, a natural, um, a natural progression because with the move to RHEL 2.1, some of those nonprofits didn't have um, big budgets. They they didn't see where they were gonna you know where they were gonna use a commercial uh, product. And so uh, I thought, well, let me just get involved here and see what's going on at the community level. And um, not being a great developer, I jumped right into uh, advocating, right? So um, so the first place that I became uh, fully involved in the project was jumping into the Fedora Ambassadors Program, right? Uh, something that has evolved into, into um, a much stronger um, experience today, but at that point, we were just, you know, showing up and telling people about Fedora and using it as much as we could in our in our uh, daily lives, and then sharing the experience with each other and with others, um, and shipping that giant um, swag, you know, the booth and the swag uh, kits all over, 
And my first big contribution in the ambassador program was taking on the responsibility of um, of uh, the fedora tattoos. So the oh, I love those. Yeah, the temporary tattoos. So um, I learned a big lesson there about what it's like to try and make a commercial uh, temporary tattoo and uh, and how to ship that all across the world and then get reimbursed. Right. So <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. But, um, but I used Fedora pretty much everywhere that somebody said, you know, what's, you know, wouldn't it be great if, uh, that was the first start. And, and I was, it was definitely, you know, directly connected to, um, uh, to Red Hat for a lot of commercial deployments, but then, you know, Fedora as a, as, as a community extension, uh, to me, the best part about it was getting involved with the people who were in the project and, and, um, and learning together. Fast forward to today, what do you do around the Fedora project? Well, now I work, uh, I work primarily on the cloud, uh, the cloud configuration. Um, I've been supporting uh, the work or, or efforts around, um, around sort of cloud adoption and, and, um, and building images that were really useful and effective across multiple architectures, and as those architectures have become available on different public clouds, and um, and then just trying to make sure that people are aware of of uh, what can be done, um, how to use tools like EC2 Image Builder, and and uh, which is the OS build project in our world, in the community world, um, and just just generally. Um, Trying to make that cloud experience better, working on cloud init and um, and the integration there, uh, and yeah, just keeping up, putting my two cents worth in. That's a lot to get into. Yeah. <laughs> to start off, what is the Fedora Cloud Edition? So I think the idea is that the Cloud Edition is uh, is sort of set to be um, an image you can use anywhere in a virtualized environment, right? So it's the foundation for um, for build or a building block for um, uh, simple systems that can be, you know, um, self-contained uh, golden images that you can create sort of a, it's a base image, a golden image that you can use to create further configuration, save that configuration in a new image, and then use that to have uh, readily available configurations um, for projects. And then on to that, th so moving on, you you start to see that in the in the context of the hyperscaler or the context the the concept of the hyperscaler. You know, fast forward or early on, we were looking at just doing this for OpenStack, right? And then, um, but then the public cloud came along. Like lots of people started to have big virtual servers, and uh, there was a need, like a clear need for for uh, a configuration that could be um, could could be used in those architectures, and they were fail only, right? Um, like uh, like when Amazon when it, when Amazon EC2 came on uh, the scene, 
that was one of the things that you could tell about it immediately, right? First off, they were working directly with Amazon at that time was working directly with Red Hat. And there was a Red Hat image. But the Fedora image <clears throat> came about, you know, was was uh, was sort of burgeoning at that point. Um, and and uh, we were looking at ways to create a an image that was consistent for a large number of those hyperscalers. DigitalOcean, um, you know, then Azure, Google, obviously, right? Everybody, every, you know, now there's hundreds and um, literally hundreds, and we try to keep a strong generic image that can be used across all of those. So Fedora Cloud started out working with just OpenStack, then it grew to work with most of the different VPS providers. In the beginning, where did it come from and why was it created? Well, I think it came from just the the basic concepts of virtualization were, you know, the first ones we had. I mean, so, you know, with Zen, there had to be an image that people could use. Uh, it wasn't just a, a simple, it didn't just simply appear, right? It had to be, it had to be created. And uh, so there were a couple of different ways that that happened. You know, we were all used to, to building our own. Um, but then it became kind of clear that as, you know, the ISO wasn't the only way that we were going to get uh, boot up. There were, gonna, there were a lot of environments that didn't have access to, um, to the ISOs or it was inconvenient for, uh, to build your own. Like it was a more complicated experience than people wanted to, to take on. So providing a ready-made image was the easiest way um, to move that forward. I don't remember exactly when it became the cloud image, but uh, sometime in the, you know, the early 2000s, it was, it was kind of clear that there was going to be a need to have just base images that everyone could consume. Um, and eventually we, you know, we call it the cloud, right? So I don't know if this will come out long enough to be its own question, but I wonder, what does the Fedora Cloud SIG do? Do you guys just create the cloud edition or is there anything else? Well, I mean, we, so yes, we make Fedora Cloud, but then there are other things that we're doing, I think, that are, that are kind of... Um, that are interesting in the sense that, you know, we're working with the specific providers to hear what it is that they need get to get done right what what is going to be important for how their um their um their infrastructure functions right and what their expectations are and then making uh changes or ensuring that we're advocating internally for uh providing some support for whatever it is that they're, you know, that they need. Right? So I think we have a, a little bit more, it's a little bit farther reaching in terms that in, in the, the sense that we're not only representing um, the, the interests, but we're also advocating strongly for the, uh, the requirements that make Fedora run better on those infrastructures. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't, there aren't, uh, there aren't times where we make a decision and it, and it, uh, it turns out that it needs some help to move, to work better on a, on some other architecture, right? We just, we just went through that with, um, uh, the way that the, some new, new features for, for, uh, Fedora 35 and I'll, we'll get into that later, but, but we found, you know, we found some problems. We, we work them out where that's what, you know, that's kind of what we do. So we find the things that we think are best for next generation. We do those, then we determine, um, you know, try to fail fast and, and, uh, um, and learn, learn what the right, what the right answer is going to be together. Um, cloud is different in that sense because the um, because the pace of new hardware and the availability of new hardware is a lot different than it is for, say, server where you have to be very careful about how how stable you are from beginning to end of the of those generations, hardware generations. Do you have a specific role in the Fedora Cloud SIG, or do you just kind of do a lot in there? So um, it's been uh, up until recently, it was it's been very generic. And now I would say that I work to co-lead with uh, Dusty Mabe, who has been strongly responsible for the the, um, the cloud group for a long time, but he's uh, stepped back some of his responsibility and I've uh, tried to pick that up where I can and um, in, in an official capacity. Just a minute ago, you touched on some of the differences between Fedora Cloud Edition and Fedora Server. Could you expand on the differences between those? Yeah, I think uh, so. Clearly, the one the one thing that I think is very uh, specifically different about server and cloud is that Server has a responsibility to create a stable infrastructure configuration across um, um, many different uh, architectures, many different infrastructures for um, for customers and then or for users, and then to um, to uh, um, provide all of the cert, like the networking services, the configuration requirements to be a, you know to be able to provide a supporting structure for all of the um, all of the different um, network services that are that are required that are requisite for building a, a strong network um, and uh, we don't have that in cloud in cloud we those responsibilities are sort of uh, separated so our goal is to ensure that whatever a customer has, whatever they or whatever a user wants to do, that they can get a purpose-built configuration uh, uh, done that doesn't have any of you know doesn't have a lot of the um, uh, the same like all of the additional packages. Right? There's not a there's not a base package um, uh, group that we want to have that that we say is canonically identifying the that this is a you know this is a cloud edition the cloud edition is really identified by what we remove like firewall d for example i think that's a a really interesting one that you know that from the cloud perspective 
we don't expect there to be a firewall on the system. Uh, but no one would leave a server, right, a server edition uh, with no firewall. Just a minute ago, you touched on how Fedora Cloud can be run on all kinds of different VPS providers. Other than the generic VPS providers where you just click, I want Fedora on my VPS, where else can you run the Cloud Edition? I mean, the best place is on your Fedora workstation, right? So um, so with some of the new changes in, in, uh, in KVM support and, and, uh, and you know, support specifically support for uh, Cloud Init, it's a great little tool for building, you know, purpose bu uh, for building uh, images that you can use over and over again, and and you can create configurations to um, to experiment with, to to uh, wake up, to destroy, you know, um, in different ways that that um, that serve your purpose, right? Um, so I think right. Right on your desktop, right on your laptop is one of the better, you know, is one of the best places to, to run it. And then beyond that, um, there are many different environments that where virtual machines can become uh, the best kind of server. I have a Nook, just an Intel Nook, that's running um, multiple virtual machines. And one of the virtual machines' responsibility is to is the is the image pipeline. For building out, for copying the uh, the official images into the AWS marketplace, and and it's just it just uh, spins up, does its job, and then and then it dies, right? So it shuts down, and when it shuts down, we're done, and um, and the majority of that is done through CloudInit, right? So um, because because I mostly because I can and because because I work with cloud all the time, I'm really comfortable building a cloud config um, and then supplementing that with Ansible. But that's a, you know, it's another story. The, I think, you know, just generally, um, there are lots of places where um, for very purpose, you know, purpose-driven jobs, they're it's a great experience um, and for testing. Yeah. I know everybody loves the container today. I can I appreciate the container's role in, in exactly that, but sometimes uh, it helps to know that you're going to get that that you know you're you're getting the entire environment, and you may want to have multiple containers involved in whatever it is that you're doing on top of that. That's pretty cool. So it's I'm getting the I tell me if this is wrong, but I'm getting the idea that this is kind of like a um a fuller container where it's quick to come up, quick to go down, um, stateless, does one thing, but it's got a bit more underneath it than a container does. Yeah, it comes, you know, these are some of the early days of the, of, of um, microservices, right? Where, where some of the places where this, this began, this, the, uh, the concepts of, of the minimal uh, server started to, to gain traction in the Linux world. And we had, you know, there were all things, sorts of things going on at the same time. LXC was coming up. People were very excited about how they could use that. That, um, you know, obviously has a, a limited reach. Lots of people used it, but um, but it was, but it had, it still has kinks. And 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 uh, and the same thing goes with a with just a minimal server. But 
but yeah, you can, you can get in there, you can find um, workloads that are simple and strategic and, and get them done. And yeah, it's great in the context of, of uh, testing and things like Jenkins or, and especially if you're doing uh, hardware development, we have a, I have a, a great friend, Gal uh, Pressman, who does a lot of um, hardware testing and RDMA core testing in the, you know, in uh, the HPC world. And, and he does this with, um, with cluster technologies uh, to make sure that he's got the right hardware and RDMA uh, um, communication stacks together, ready to go. Uh, and some of that happens on his desktop and some of it happens, you know, just out in the cloud. What's RDMA? Uh, remote direct memory access. Uh, so it's a technique for, um, for communicating between two servers or multiple servers uh, where they're sharing um, fast path access to, um, to data values in memory. Interesting. You, yeah, it's used in high-performance high computing quite a bit. So say you've intrigued me and I want to now run Fedora Cloud somewhere on a machine. How can I get it? Oh, that's great. So the the first place you would want to go is uh, to the um, Fedora Projects cloud, uh, alt um, page and uh, you'd want to pull that down. I'm sure we can put a link in the in the notes. But the It will be there. Yeah. Um but the but the um the cloud images are all set together on a uh, a couple of pages. There's um, there's the just the basic download of the raw image, and the raw image can be imported into many different um, environments, or or like I said, just used on your just use it on your workstation. Um, and the and then there are uh, links to the um, the the cloud images that have already been uploaded to different uh, public providers, uh, so that if you're um, if you're just looking to get started, you can you know you can just uh, launch a you know launch an instance on Google or launch an instance on Azure or you can launch an instance well uh, sorry not yet on Azure but you can launch one on on Amazon um, we're working on the Azure on the Azure marketplace right. But uh, um, but you can launch you know pretty much in whatever you know whatever environment you want to from the link on that uh, on that site and then uh, if it's not available if the one you're looking for is not available you can use the image and import that image into your whatever provider it is that you want to you want to get started with. If you're running it on your machine, would you just put it in a generic? libvirt qemu type virtual machine yeah yeah that's an easy way to do it um you can set up a bridge network and just run it run it on uh, on a standard uh, uh libvirt system one of my favorite things to do is um the libvirt tools include uh this this great um this handy tool called vert sysprep um, so if you're creating an image and you want to have, like, you want to do updates and you want to install some software and you want to make some changes, uh, you can do all those changes, reconfigure it, and then you can use the vert sysprep, uh, uh, you can use the guestfish tools 
something like the guestfish tools uh, to make the modifications on the system, then you can use the virt sysprep to remove all the traces like the machine IDs, the um, any of the artifacts that would have been there from boot or from like creating a user, all that is deleted and then left in the hands of the cloud init to reconstruct at first boot. So um, there's some cool tools out there that you can use to, you know, to make this virtualization experience customized and, um, and to just enjoy it. If anybody wants to talk about that, I'll talk about it all day. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Technically, how is the Fedora cloud image? How are the Fedora cloud images built? So they're built with uh, Image Factory uh, on uh, on Koji, uh, and um, and they're built based on the Kickstart. So we use we use a Kickstart configuration. That Kickstart configuration is um, is then used to um, to create an image of a specific type, and then we have a naming we have a naming structure. And you wouldn't believe how important the naming uh, structure is, because we build we build these images all the time, right? A couple every once every couple of weeks or so. Um, when they're deployed to um, to the to the environments, these public environments uh, with the public clouds, um, those images start to add up. You start to see a lot of them, right? Um, and so it's good to know that you've got latest, right? You, a lot of a lot of times it's easy to find the the latest image, but then if you can't sort them with the with the naming convention uh, with a naming convention, it becomes very difficult. So. We try to very to be very specific about the naming, very you know, uh, very consistent, and um, and then those images are built, they're tested, they go through the same so, sort of CI process that we that we have for um, for the workstation server, and then um, and then we do cloud days, Fedora cloud days, you know, for testing um, or Fedora test days for cloud, uh, which we have one coming up in October, October 11th and 12th. Um, and then those images get pushed to the various providers so that they are available. Um, it's and and to the website so that you can download them for yourself. Is Fedora Cloud built on anything, or is it kind of, is it from the same abstraction of not being built on top of anything that server, desktop, are built on? Totally the same. So uh, yeah, the cons I mean, obviously this is not a spin, right? It's it's consistent with the uh, um, with the standard the standard configuration. So there's no deviation. If you let's say uh, you decided you wanted to install some some package, uh, well, there's nothing else installed. I guess that's the right way to say it. Is there's nothing installed there that's going to be different or deviate from from uh, um, the standard configuration or the expected configuration. So um, we try to keep it consistent. We don't want to do uh, we don't want to do anything that's going to be um, considered to be outside of the expected changes. And you know, we we follow the same change proposal requirements that everybody does, and we consider those to be um, expected to be a part of the system, right? So I think 
the most radical thing, the most radical differences are related to uh, the kernel parameters and things that are associated with curiously different experiences on cloud. So to give you, I, I, let me give you a kind of a, a, an example. In the world of in the world of um, AWS regions, there are availability zones, and in the configurations there, your most of your block storage devices are networked, right? So, um, if you have a server that uh, it goes offline for some reason, let's say the region becomes or the availability zone in a region becomes unavailable, and that instance then is no longer no longer capable of accessing you're you're no longer capable of accessing that instance right you've created an instance from that from the cloud image if if the networking connection fails um on an nvme device it could take a long time for you to get to to com complete your last read or to complete your last flush and an NVMe device usually has a timeout, like a read or a write timeout of about four milliseconds. But we extend that in our configuration for the IO timeout to the maximum size of the integer for whatever given architecture it is, right? So, and the reason we do that is because it could take a day for it to get back but it doesn't matter because it's a network device functioning as a as a as a uh, pseudo PCI, right? So it looks like an NVMe device, but it's really being accessed across a, a network connection using the same instructions that you would expect would you would use with a with a very low latency device like the NVMe. Well, it could take forever. Doesn't matter. So we we extend that timeout to something that would be absolutely crazy to do on premises. So if you were you know using server, it, you wouldn't want to do that. But using cloud, totally would want to let it come back whenever it does, whenever it's whenever it's ready. That's crazy that there's just like differences like that that you wouldn't even think of, but make Fedora server just inefficient to do in that use case. It, well, I mean, I could make the modifications. That would make server, you know, that would that would make server uh, function that way, but no one would want it on premises, right? You would you would never want that on your home server or on your laptop, for goodness sake. And you know, um, if your file system wasn't accessible for four milliseconds, you'd want somebody to somebody to tell you. <laughs> There's a that'd be a long, you know, that's a long time to not flush to disk if you're, you know, if you're if the if the information is important. So, yeah, it's different. It's, you know, there's a different experience there, different different way of handling, error handling and, and whatnot be, because of the, the shift in paradigm. The Fedora 35 release is coming up soon. What is new for Fedora Cloud in Fedora 35? So there's two big ones, I think, uh, that are that are most notable. Uh, one is we've moved to a hybrid boot configuration. So it used to be that we were we just used the classic boot configuration on the 
uh, Intel systems, and then we used the uh, UEFI or WIFI, however you want to say it, the uh, boot model on um, on the AMD instances, or I'm sorry, the ARM instances. So, um, uh, but there has been sort of a dramatic change in in the the acceptance of UEFI on um, on public clouds, and so in preparation for the days when uh, classic boot is no longer supported, we're working. We have integrated a hybrid configuration that makes it possible for us to um, boot the images, regardless of whether or not the instance configuration is set for uh, UEFI or classic boot. The second one is we've moved from um, we moved from a standard EXT4 uh, file system to um, ButterFS. Yay, ButterFS. Uh, sort of similar. Yeah, so so we're moving, you know, similar to the way that the workstation has has moved to um, to ButterFS. We are also moving to ButterFS. Um, there's some interesting things about ButterFS that are very uh, cloud friendly, and um, I'm very excited about that. So one of the things that we face complications around um, in the cloud world that I think this is a great opportunity for us to explore uh, how we can, you know, how we can change this for uh, for everyone or how everyone can can start to look at why ButterFS is a better fit is uh, is in classic um, uh, Stig hardening or or um, or the hardening the CIS be uh, benchmark requirements for uh, for um, uh, secure systems requires you to have these complicated partition structures that are not a part. This is another one of those cloud uh, sort of cloud variations. We don't create partitions on on the uh, the cloud instances, and the reason we don't create partitions is because um, there's really no need. I mean, if the system fails, right? Like like a, a, on a server. You've got to really part. You know, you've got to uh, lock down whether or not the log files are are going to take over the system, right? You never want a system to run out of disk space because logs. Right? You want you want to make sure that whatever your applications are, they're separated off into var, and their space can't um, can't um, uh, stop logging and vice versa. But on an, on a uh, on a cloud instance, you're not worried about that. If the instance for some reason becomes unusable, you will destroy it and make a new one, right? Um, so typical ba load balancing configurations tend to have systems that are logging. Um, they either log remotely or they log locally or they both. And um, and if you have if you have a workload that becomes unresponsive, then typically your instance requirements are uh, are to just let it die and replace it, right? So whatever its function is, it's func it should be functionally replaceable. Um, to, so so uh, we don't create complex partitions, but that's still a requirement for this, you know, these, uh, these uh, secure systems. So secure systems want to have this... Uh, this, these uh, variations in the in the um, in the in the partitions 
we can't satisfy that after the fact. It has to be done prior. So if we were going to do that, we would have to create additional images that had, you know, uh, variations in the way that they were configured. And pretty soon you'd be inundated with these like purpose-built conf cloud configurations. And our goal with using ButterFS was to leverage the subvolume as a way to repartition the the system, uh, regardless of what that base uh, base partition looked like. So we create one single ButterFS strategy, but it manages it, it's something that we can manage a, a significant number of variations on uh, in the way that that uh, file system access works. And so we're hoping that that will improve and we'll see better. You know, we'll see more adoption and people will see that. And then there's some other things like uh, volume snapshots. You can create these really uh, sort of fast and, and easy acting volume snapshots that you can then send uh, to different volumes and then use those across multiple systems. So if you actually are making modifications and you want to start up hundreds of different systems that, that have, you know, uh, mild variations in the way that they they are configured to get re like changes in performance or whatever, then this gives you a great test bed or or uh, um, ability to do lots of different variations in blue green deployments, which we see you know you see in a lot of cloud cloud configurations. If you looked at the number of like the number of machine images that are created by Netflix, for example, in a given day, you'd see that you know there's thousands. And they're testing those all the time. ButterFS has a lot of features that are crazy cool and also crazy complica mm -hmm. complicated, but I'm sure are going to be super useful in Fedora Cloud. I think so. I think I think that uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I want people to give it time. I know that I know that the server team is not ready uh, to see ButterFS, and I think that that's a reasonable stance. Uh, for the kinds of complex volume configurations that they want to do. Um, and for many generations of older configurations that maybe aren't, um, well, they definitely aren't really apropos of, of cloud configuration, right? So we want to make sure, I know that they have, they have their reasons for holding off, but uh, we thought that this was definitely the best time for us to move forward. So for Fedora 35, ButterFS, all the way, super excited that, you know, we're making this move. And it was about time we moved off of EXT4. That's all I have to say. Definitely. <laughs> Self-plug, if you go back to episodes three and four of the Fedora podcast in this season, we had Chris Murphy on to talk about ButterFS, and we had a lot of interesting discussions. This is really amazing. He's been a great, uh, great part of our uh, of our move to um, to ButterFS in the cloud sig, and so um, it's been uh, it's been really fun to work with him, and and I very much enjoy uh, his style. So yeah, he's very knowledgeable. I think we put in I think he put in like eight bugs the first day we started talking about it. Just wow. boom, boom, boom. right here's what we're gonna face with containers. Here's what we're gonna face with you know and just just really had a great handle on on where we were going and and uh, and what was going to be necessary. The container space is somewhere we're still working, but but we're um, we're hopeful that we'll have uh, the right kind of drivers in place for 
for um, for making that uh, uh, making the container consistent. Chris is awesome. Yeah. My last question for you is, how can people get involved in Fedora Cloud if they want to help out, file bugs, any of that type of thing? Well, so, I mean, big plug for Fedora Cloud test days and all of the work that Sumatra has done. Um, what an amazing guy. Just want to uh, plug his efforts around test and and how easy he makes it to be a part of um, of the Fedora test days. So definitely need you out there testing. Definitely need you testing on uh, the you know the public cloud of your choice, the uh, your local configurations. We want to see it all, um, and uh, and private clouds too. I mean, we really want to see you know the results that customers have or users have with with their uh, private private cloud. So um, beyond that the use cases right like what solutions are are you you know are you looking at for and i don't even care if if fedora cloud is not the first target i just want to know you know like what do, what would you like to see uh in terms of of uh of cloud solutions we constantly forget that uh, i think that you know, because we're so excited about getting things done and and having this, you know, Fedora next, uh, we forget about how many solutions people really want to hear about and or, or they want to get things done, right? And and uh, so you want to hear, I want to hear back what people want to see. I would love to see more uh, um, more people interested in uh, specific workloads. Like I'm really excited about. Um, making NeuroFedora uh, spin work in cloud, right? I mean, I know that there are a lot of people who are using the same kind of tools, but it would be really great if we could bring that, you know, bring those spins in. We started to look at really a lot more solutions and and uh, we built some narratives around that. Um, so, I mean, any way they want to get involved, I'm super happy, right? Uh, they want to make artwork, they want to do uh, they want to do narratives. They want to. Um, uh, they want to. You know. They want to write code. They want to improve the kickstarts. They, you know, see variations that they want to bring. You know, or they see like changes that uh, that they want to make to make things better for specific environments. I'm all for you know helping them do that. But then uh, getting involved, just you know, test days and come to the Fedora Cloud uh, SIG meetings if you can. Um, and we'll find, you know, we'll find, we'll find something for you to do. If you don't, if you're, if you come in with no bigger idea than I want to do something on cloud, we're going to get you started and we're going to, you know, we're going to, um, uh, we're going to be your biggest cheerleaders. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add about Fedora Cloud? Um, if you don't, that's okay. I think that the the big thing here is, is yeah, we want we'd love to see more solutions. I'd love to talk to people about what they're doing with the with with cloud, and um, and so bring all of that to our meetings and tell us all about it. We're we're looking forward to to um, making it better.
Thank you, David, for coming on the show and talking about this. This has been a really fun interview, and I can't wait to publish it. And, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you did it, and and I'm I'm super excited about uh, about being a part of this, the podcast. It's bittersweet to know that this is the last time this season that I'm going to get to read this outro and then play this music. After this episode ends, the Fedora podcast is on an indefinite hiatus. At the moment, nobody, including me, has enough time to run this show. It's sad, but necessary, that we don't know when we'll be back. However, I am hopeful that we'll be able to release new episodes, maybe around mid-2022, but no promises. I'm also hopeful that we can release some special episodes in between then and now, so don't unsubscribe. Today, I'd like to thank everyone that made this show possible. You gave us awesome interviews, tons of information, and you gave me a lot of fun making this. I want to thank all my guests, everyone who came on and talked to us about Fedora. I'd like to thank my co-host, Edward, our artist, Ryan Gorley, and our musician, Tricknology. I want to thank Audacity, I want to thank the OpenSUSE people for the Jitsi server we use. I want to thank Paul Frields for Pulsecaster where we record. I want to thank Ben Cotton for his Friday Fedora facts that gave me the news to cover on this show. I'd like to thank Michael and everyone at DLN for being our podcast network. And finally, I'd like to thank Fedora and every single person who helps make Fedora possible, whatever you do in the project. Finally, I'd like to thank everyone who personally helped me along my journey to get here. Thank you. I'm Grayson, and that was The Fedora Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10. Please subscribe, and we'll see you at some point in the future.